Oh, Lord. Back in the real studio. Well, my apartment, but still. <laughs> it's way better. I'm sitting in a chair. It's yeah, great. I'm not on the floor. The only thing I'm missing is the AC. Oh, Lordy. I'm hungover as shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, babe. Yeah, babe. Remember that time we watched The Changeling? You mean one of the top-rated horror films of all time and one of Canada's greatest cultural outputs? Yeah, dude. A lot of people are obsessed with this. People fucking love this movie. I, I can see why. It's good. It's very solid. Yeah. Completely different than a lot of things we've covered recently. Most deaf. So I'm Nicole. I am Topher. And we're the Horror Babes, here to bring horror right to your headphones. It's funny. I feel less horrified now because I'm finally on medication. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing Weirder, what modern medicine can do, question wild, mark. Wild. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the film The Changeling from 1980. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to do our same form here, format. So Topher's going to tell us about who made this thing, who was in it, uh, some some film theory, all of that. And then we're going to go into plot. And then we're just going to discuss some of the themes. Um, this was based on a true story. So we're definitely going to do a deep dive on that. For sure. And yeah. So who made this thing? Uh, not Clint Eastwood. No. That is the 2008 film starring Angelina Jolie. Very confusing. Of Hackers fame. One of my favorite movies. Yes. Very confusing. Yes. But no, this is 1980. Mm-hmm. So this film was directed by Peter Medak. He's from, he's one of those uh, directors that we had a wave of sort of like Eastern European and Hungarian directors mm-hmm. coming across uh, Europe and over the ocean to the States, um, doing a lot of like British and American film. For a while, a certain director who we have mentioned but not named a lot in this podcast. Oh my god. Is one of them. Put a dollar in the jar. God, I'm sorry. Well, no, not that one. The shitty one. The one that's like super bad. About a certain baby and a cult. Oh, okay. An herb. Herbs baby. Yes. Herbs spawn. (laughs) So Peter Madak, or Madak, I I don't speak Hungarian. I don't know why I always do the names. I can't pronounce anyone's name ever. You're better at it than I am. (laughs) Maybe. So he's most known for this movie, but he did a bunch of like direct television films. He also directed several episodes of The Wire and Carnival. Cool. And Homicide, all of which are like major, major, like really well-renowned shows. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's the director. You would know his work. Everybody has seen it somewhere pretty Mm much. Yeah. Uh, I like everybody's seen The Wire except us. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm working on it. I've seen the first season. Should get on that. Yeah, it's it's really good from what I've seen. <laughs> so screenplay was written by William Gray and Diana Maddox. Of course, the original book was written by Russell Hunter. Yes. And we'll get to him. Death. But Diana Maddox is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a fairly successful actor. You know, she did a lot of voice work. She uh, actually voiced Queen Mira and a bunch of other characters on the 1970s Aquaman show. Interesting. The 1970s or 1960s? I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, I, I yeah. Didn't know like that. the one from like the Justice Friends or whatever. Yeah. Whatever that's they cool. called it, yeah. Cool piece of trivia. Yeah, and she she had sort of been an actor for a while, kind of on and off, and then she moved over to writing in a later stage of her career. Mm. Classic, love it. But yeah, I really enjoyed seeing you know a woman involved with horror who was whose name was at the top of the credits. That yeah. was really cool. We love, we love yes. that. Big big fan. So of course, this stars George C. Scott, mm-hmm. very very famous, very renowned actor. Yeah. <laughs> 
partially infamous for refusing two Best Actor Oscars. Yeah, you told me that. You read you you read to me or showed me like a quote that he was like. Yeah. He's he said something along the lines like, "I am not in competition with these actors or right. whatever." So he refused the, he refused an Oscar twice. Once for Doctor Strangelove and once for Patton. Got it. The reason why is yeah, like you said, he didn't think he was in competition. Now that's super unclear what he meant in in yeah, that posterity. Could mean, that could mean so many things. Yeah, but I don't think it was that he was being a dick. If I remember the story right, it's because he didn't believe that acting was a competition, and he thought that awards were stupid. Right, which is a, a lot of people believe that he was Bong Joon Ho before his time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I actually really appreciate that because awards are dumb. Yeah. I I desperately want one. But they're stupid. Yeah, see, that's the thing, is that <laughs> everyone kind of knows they're stupid, but once you win one, you're like, hot shit. Yeah. So, you I know, get it. I wouldn't mind one. I would. I don't have a shelf to put it on right now, but I would build one. Yeah, you're very good at woodworking. Um, <laughs> not, not a euphemism. No. <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Us? Never. No. no. So... We haven't covered... Who's the, who's the cinematographer? The cinematography was done by John Colquion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dutch cinematographer. Not much that most people would have seen other than Straw Dogs, which okay. was Sam Peckinpah. Uh-huh. And that was a very... Con- he's a very controversial director, but that was his most famous, I would say, other than this. Okay. He's very, very good, but he's just not someone that most people would know. Got it. He's done a number of things that I've seen and are very good, but he's not... A yeah, I think the only other thing that people would have seen other than Straw Dogs would be the 1970 Wuthering Heights. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, for um, the BBC, I think. So yeah, yeah. it's um, generally speaking, he's a, a very good cinematographer from what I've seen, but he's uh-huh. just not super well known. He did a lot of you know more indie films. I I loved the cinematography in this particular very beautiful. movie. It was it was really well done, mm-hmm. which is why I was wondering who who did it. Yeah, because <laughs> it was very good. Wuthering Heights makes sense now. Yeah, yeah, right. So as for the music, this it was done by Rick Wilkins, okay. who is still alive. <laughs> he is wow, still cooking. older than my granddad, and he's still alive. Wow, Canadian composer. This was you know broadly Canadians who did this. Yeah, um, that's right. It's a Canadian film. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that. But he's a uh, a great composer um, and arranger. He did a lot of work for the CBC. Mm-hmm. That's where he's done most of his work is like different programs for them. Cool. But he has worked, I mean, he's worked with Tommy Ambrose, Guido Basso, Canadian Brass, Burton Cummings, and Murray. Like, he's done a lot. It, he's just a very, you know, prolific composer. You know, that's uh, what's the joke is that like basically everybody who's egotted is a composer. Makes sense. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. It's sort of the fast track if you're good at it. Everything has music <laughs> in it. It's, exactly. It's, it's just one of those things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The editor on this was uh, Lilla Peterson. I have no information on her. I've looked her up. I cannot find her. It's likely that she was another one of these sort of like technical people who worked with CBC a lot would be my guess. Yeah. And that they were brought on for that. And then we've got the actors. So like we said, George C. Scott is John Russell. That's our protagonist here. Trish Vandeveer, uh, who was his wife at the time, I believe. They were married at some point. Uh, it's Claire Norman, the the woman from the historical society who is throughout the movie and is kind of a love interest, kind of not. Not clear. There are vibes. Yeah. Melvin Douglas is Senator Carmichael, our antagonist, uh, and that's that's basically it for people who matter in this movie. There's yeah, a few other side characters, some yeah, yeah. bunch of, of a bunch of very recognizable character actor faces throughout this. Typical of the time for these sorts of movies, yeah. But nothing that is too too necessary to mention. I mean, again, no small parts. Just don't need to bore everybody with a thousand names. Yeah, 
those would be the big three, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this this uh, style of movie was really really reminded me of of Rosemary's Baby. So I would kind of say if, if if that's your jam, if you really like Rosemary's Baby, I would definitely recommend this movie to you. Yeah, I mean, there's there was a lot of crossover, like I said, between Eastern Europe, uh, yeah, like former Soviet, what's now the former Soviet bloc mm-hmm. area, era, mm, sorry, former Soviet bloc era, yeah, or area, I guess I can't remember how to say words. I don't know what I'm doing here, and. Like the UK and the States at this time. Mm-hmm. So it was all very like, there's a lot more sharing, I guess. I mean, it's more like today where yeah. you have a lot of people crossing over. Like we've got a lot of, the States has a lot of crossover with New Zealand right now with Taika Waititi and uh, Brit, Brit from Flight Bla- of the Concords and Jermaine Clement also from Flight of the Concords. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we have them. Plus there's obviously like Edgar Wright from the UK, mm-hmm. Danny Boyle, what's his name that I love, Alex Garland. Yeah. You know, it, there's there's a lot of trade back and forth of like who's making movies here and there and everywhere. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like that now when you're looking at all these art house films. And like, actually, I should include Mexico as well because you have Guillermo <laughs> del Toro. Yeah. Yeah. As well as Alfonso Cuaron. So, yeah. So beyond that, 107 minutes with a tight runtime there. And then the budget was uh, pretty high for the time. Six and a half million. And then supposedly made 12 million back, which is not bad. You know, double your budget. <laughs> Hell yeah! Back Good in for them. Uh, back in box office. I mean, yeah. I mean, this was a time when this was so to place this in history. Yeah, this is nineteen eighty is when this was released. Yes, it a uh, few years. This is not that long after the Exorcist came out. It's about it's within a decade after the Exorcist came out. It's within six years of when the Omen came out. It's thirteen years after Rosemary's Baby, right? That was nineteen sixty seven. I believe so. Yeah. Uh, you've got Halloween coming out right before this. The Thing coming out right around this time, Alien coming out right around this time. Like this was a prime that's, era for horror. Yeah, and that that's, not to mention all of the zombie films that came out at this time too. That's good to know. That's good context to put this movie in because it doesn't feel it feels dated in comparison to all of those, like Halloween, yes, and Alien and everything that you said. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 interesting because I would have thought that this had come out in 1967. Yeah, it's got that vibe to it. It's a, it does. It's a bit of a throwback for the time. Yeah, and I think that that is actually one of the reasons why it was so successful mm-hmm. was because, I mean, a lot of people, uh, uh, something that I've noticed, just a pattern in fans of horror is we get really into one thing. And then something comes, something grabs from decades ago. Yeah. And we're suddenly like, oh, this is so refreshing. I mean, it happens with every art form. Oh, 100%. But in horror especially. Yeah. And so I can see why that did really well. Mm-hmm. Even though now looking back on it, I'm like, that was like kind of dated for the time. But enough time had passed right. that it was reminiscent. Yeah. Yeah. And so like to put it in context, like time moves faster now, basically. Yeah, definitely. And the idea is like the information, the faster information travels, the quicker things turn over, right? So yeah. 13 years ago, or so, you know, 13 years in the past at that, in 1980 would be like us, like looking back at the mid 90s now. It'd yeah. be 25 as opposed to like, so the, like I'm, 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 this is all talking at my ass, but that's sort of how it feels to me. Well, playing on nostalgia is always a really good tool. Yeah. And you, you'll always get people. Yeah. And so it, like, this would be like, if you know, we made, if someone came in and like made Scream now or like, hell, uh, uh, Jordan Peele just produced Candyman. Yeah. Which came out in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the sort of idea, is that you're, you're throwing back. The Invisible Man was being remade. Like, that sort of thing. Yeah, and there's always this comment on um, films like this where they're like, you don't need... This goes to show that you don't need the gore or the, like, blah, blah, blah to yeah. sell, you know, a horror film. And so it kind of comes in that package of the context that 
Yeah, the Goreless films. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got some gory films that have come out, and then you've got this one. Right. Yeah, because I mean, like, look they're at all the body great. horror. Yeah. Yeah, they're all great, but I get, I get why you know th- this is why people become obsessed with certain movies is mm-hmm. because they're like. I was really scared, blah, blah, blah. But it goes to show that I don't need, like, people's heads falling off or, like, whatever. Yeah. Confident horror filmmaking comes in many, many shades. Oh, absolutely. And that's why we're here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, did we... So we've covered everything about, like... Who technically made it, right? Are yeah, we, yeah, we're all square there, so I can hop on. into plot if you want. All right, let's do plot. Yeah, I just wanted to put it in. Uh, just wanted to put it in. No, that was really we jumped in. That was really helpful. I'm glad cool. you did that. Yeah, awesome. Hell yeah, let's let's go into plot. What happens? Beautiful. So we start off with this uh, mountainside, snowy winter shot. Mm-hmm. George C. Scott and his much younger wife. <laughs> and oh very my god! Young yeah, child. I was like, I was like at first, what is their relation? I thought it was like his daughter, and then like his grand. Yeah, Child. yeah, it was that sort of, I mean, he was 53 in this, so I understand that, like, lots of people have parents that are that age, like, yeah. that age gap, like, the daughter's probably, like, eight, nine, Yeah. so that he would have been in his early 40s when he had her. Yeah. I understand that that's, like, a very common thing totally. for a lot of our friends. But it have. was, like, the first thing that I noticed. Yeah, because, like, I, you and I both have fairly young parents and yeah. young, like, youngish grandparents, yeah. relatively speaking, but it was just funny to me to, like, see that, it was like, yeah, like, I thought George Scott was like in his 60s in this. And it's like, okay, no, he's like 50. Yeah. And that's a nor- I know that's a normal age for parents. For some people, it just was weird to me. <laughs> yeah, I was. it was a little striking to he me. He just looks sure. old, too. Like, he just doesn't, you know, he never looked young. Yeah. Even you look at young photos of him, he's like, are you, what age are you? Yeah. <laughs> Were you always 40? Yeah. And then just got older from there? Yeah. Anyway, not actually relevant, just funny. Definitely. So their car's broken down in the snow. They're trying to be on vacation. They're all joking. They're like, we're going to go to Hawaii next year. Yeah. He goes to a payphone to try and call a tow. Of course, there's an accident. Truck just barrels through her, their car. Yeah. And his and wife you, and child are just destroyed, obliterated. Definitely. <laughs> when he steps away, you've got this immediate, like your heart starts racing. Yeah. And it's you get just, the long shot of the big truck and the car that's driving wild. You know, in the it's snow. not going to yeah. be great. Yeah. <laughs> it's never going to be great. So we have a man now emotionally haunted by the death of a wife and child. We're four, we're four months later. Mm-hmm. He's a composer living in New York City, but he's packing up his apartment. He has these flashbacks to his wife and child. And mostly it's mostly about his daughter. Like yeah, he seems he, torn up about his wife, but he only ever mentions his daughter. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And this, this family yeah. was wealthy, y'all. Yeah, living right next so to Lincoln rich. Center. Yeah, like and- a block away. That apartment was gorgeous. It had some built-ins. It was mm-hmm. it was a gem. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful apartment. Be jealous. But then because of budget concerns, they immediately move the... <laughs> they immediately move it, yeah. I was like, oh, man, because I always get really excited when things are set in New York, but they immediately move it. Where are, are we in Denver or no? No, Seattle. Seattle, that's right. Yeah, so he moves to Seattle. He has a job at Universal. Uh, yeah, exactly. happens in Denver. That's why I was yeah. confused. So this is John Russell is George C. Scott's character. He immediately moves to Seattle. Uh, you know, four months later, he moves to Seattle for a job at, I believe, for the University of Washington. Yeah, I think we're supposed to believe that. Best guess. He's actually in Vancouver and Victoria, but... It, yeah, <laughs> because taxes. <laughs> yup. That's why we all shoot in Canada and Georgia. <laughs> Bless. So he goes to meet with some of his friends out there who have provide, who have sort of got hooked him up with like a guest lecturer job. Mm-hmm. And... They mention he's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to like stay at a hotel or whatever. Uh, I'm looking at like renting an apartment, maybe. And they're like, no, no, no. I've I actually I've got a friend who was just talking to me about 
this place that they need to rent from the historical society society so far the moral of the story is don't rent from the historical society yeah right it's probably a reason the house is <laughs> been has, vacant for 12 years well and yeah and they're trying to yeah no yeah they're trying to foist it off on you <laughs> yeah like this place is too good to be true what's going on it's like that apartment you looked at yesterday oh so sad <laughs> so sad it was so nice <laughs> so John starts feeling a little creeped out by various things happening in the uh, in the apartment. There's some thumps and thuds, and he's the only one in the apartment, yeah. or the house, so yeah. Doors opening on their own, piano keys suddenly not working, and then suddenly working. Yeah, it's one of those things like where... Are, are you you could easily tell yourself that you're just going crazy it's not right. it's, it's, it's nothing overt it's it's just how all hauntings start <laughs> yeah here's like you know loud banging exactly at 6 a.m every morning yes the groundskeeper's like no it's just these old pipes baby it's like no this shit is haunted <laughs> and this ghost is on a sketch yeah it's got a schedule regular yeah, very regular ghost. And he, you know, he starts finding all the water taps on. Eventually, he find he sees like a a young boy's face underneath the the surface of the water, and mm-hmm. that really freaks him out. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'd be totally chill. It's a really great shot. It is. It is. That was the first shot that I saw where I was just like, "Damn, okay." Yeah. So the final thing that just like sends him over the edge is. He's walking out of the house and this he hears like a shattering above him and a bunch of glass falls all around him. And he finds this red stained glass. He's like, I don't have any red stained glass in this house. Where the fuck did this come from? <laughs> Yikes. Until he looks up and he finally sees this window he hasn't seen before at the very, very, very top. In yeah. A room that he had not been able to see. He had not found before. So fucking haunted. <laughs> Jesus. He has a little... uh George C. Scott moment is what I'll call it, where he's just like, ah, ah, like a little frothy at the mouth and starts ripping everything apart with his bare oh, hands. Yeah. And there's a door behind him? Yeah, he yeah. finds a boarded up door in a, in a closet he, that had been pretty well hidden, honestly. Very Rosemary's Baby. The closet Mary's wasn't baby. hidden, but the, yeah. yeah, but the, yeah, exactly. Very Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, same thing happens. So he goes up to this attic and damn the set dressing here. Yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. Wonderful cobweb work. Cobweb yeah. work. Cobweb work. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, production design was very, very good on this. Mm-hmm. So he goes up there. He finds a wheelchair and little writing desk with a journal from 1909. And it has some initials on it. And then he finds a music box that's playing the exact same melody he thought he had just written himself. Oh, down to the key, every note the same. Oh, haunted, possessed. Oh my God, we've got music. We've got a seance coming up. Yeah. We love a seance. <laughs> so he and Claire, that's Trish Vandeveer's character, start investigating the history of the house. And we get that beautiful little harbinger moment from that crazy lady. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Miss Gray, I believe. Miss Gray. And she is like, that house doesn't want people living in it. Yeah. And she was like, so good. She's like, they lied to you. And he's yeah. like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, that house doesn't want people living in it. And he's still like, what? And <laughs> can you speak up, dear? <laughs> <laughs> they want you to take the roles. <laughs> and yeah, that was a really amazing cameo. It's that was so a, well done. Such I love, a perfect moment. We love just a little walk on moment. Definitely, because there's always there's always that trope 
every single haunting movie of just like yeah just like what do they say in um tucker and dale versus evil the the sheriff is like nothing but pain and suffering happens up there and dale and tucker are both just like okay um bye i just want to go fishing (laughs) yeah uh, we're just gonna go set up this house but yeah i i I do always love that trope because it's just like lady what have you seen it was really well done in a cabin in the woods too the character's Mm -hmm. literally called harbinger yes yes, and like yeah (laughs) he goes off on those like weird rants he's like Mom, speakerphone. <laughs> it's so crazy. So that's not this movie, though. Yeah, it's a. That's always my one of my favorite characters in these in these movies is the is the doomsayer, the harbinger. I would the, love to play it too oh, because it's, such it's just a fun little meaty bit. Well, the intensity, yeah. like the eye contact of just like something's not right. Yeah, I I love it. <laughs> one eye wide open, one eye squinted. <laughs> Usually they don't have an eye, you know, like dream roll. You, yeah. you have to you have to have some something about you where you're just like, okay, you're like cuckoo. <laughs> yeah, she's got the Coke bottle glasses. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they eventually decide to hold a seance. A seance? Yes. I know how to say seance, guys. I'm not an idiot. I just think it's more fun to say it like Beyonce. Seance? They talk to the spirits. <laughs> It's a seance. I'm done with you. <laughs> okay, I won't say it anymore. So yeah, they hold the spirit talking moment with a couple of mediums. A man spirit and his wife. Talking. Yeah. That man talks to spirits. Well, the lady talks to spirits. The man the talks lady. to his wife. This was a cool scene. It was really I liked well done. The, yeah. The writing. Yeah. So That's this is really um. Cool. There's some nice historical things here too. That mm-hmm. like um. That was a very very common thing with uh, uh spiritualism, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Aaron Mickey talks about this a lot on his podcast, Lore. That's like the main oh, focus yeah. of that podcast. Like every single episode is about spiritualism now. I think he ran out of cryptids, but. Yeah. True. Yeah. But it was a common thing in the 19th century to have someone who was purported to be a medium Mm -hmm. to sort of go into a trance, so to speak. There's lots of air quotes happening here, but this is an audio medium. Uh, And then they'll do that. They have those big sheets of paper and have someone pull them away as they just scribbled and they would suddenly write a word after a while. Yeah. And the idea is that you're basically like you're being you're the reason that it's so uh, air quotes again, the reason that it's. Uh, all scribbly is because you're getting too much feed and you're trying to focus the feed. It's like static. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. how I read it was the squiggles is like static and then something comes through like a walkie talkie. You get one word here, one word there. For our younger listeners, static is a thing that happened over TVs and radios before we it had It sounded streaming. like Pshhh. And it looked like Looked like ants. Yeah. And little squiggle lines. Mm-hmm. Waveforms. Yeah. So so, <laughs> so the seance scene is cool. Yeah, it's really dope. And so I previously to this, John had thought that there was this young girl who had died in the house. Mm-hmm. We find out that it is not the young girl. It is, in fact, a young boy named Joseph. And the only words we get are house, Joseph, father. Yeah. Uh, in, in response to the medium's questions. But no, we don't hear anything. We just see her, like, scribble these words out. Yeah. John's obviously disturbed. Uh, and sits up and listens to the audio tape. Another really cool scene here. I loved it. Like, when so he was, this whole extended seance scene is really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it when he was just going back and listening because you hear more. Exactly. You can actually yeah. hear the voice saying it mm-hmm. um, in the recording. And he's just like keeps going back, going back. And at this point, I was thinking like, is he trying to figure out if he knows this person or something? Like if the right. voice sounds familiar, because you have that in the back of your mind that like his family died and it was mm-hmm. a young, his daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So you do have it in the back of your mind, like, is he being, like, haunted by them? And you know that he's thinking that, too. Of like, course, Like, if there's yeah. a spirit, he's like, well, I have people very close to me who died, so mm-hmm. maybe it's unfinished business. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, like, the, um, it's not heavy-handed with that no. storyline. You just know it's there. It's it's obvious. It's not, doesn't beat you over the head with, like, there's lots of movies these days that would, like, beat you over the head with, like, remember that his daughter died. And, like, they yeah. bring it up a lot, but not in a way that it it felt yeah I just didn't feel heavy handed I didn't feel like berated by this thing I was like yeah I know I know I remember yeah I agree it's very yeah. it's very subtle and you just because he keeps turning it up that's all you needed right that's all you needed is that he obviously can hear the word yeah but wants to hear the inflection and the voice quality exactly and he's yeah. running it back and running it forward and he's making sure like, he's making sure that he's not crazy he's like is it gonna happen every time because if you're crazy it's not gonna happen every time yeah it's gonna stop at some point mm-hmm but it doesn't. It just nope. gets clear. <laughs> yeah. So he discovers that Joseph. So it's important that there were like uh, initials on that that notebook, mm-hmm. and they think that it's this young girl's notebook. Yeah. In fact, it was, I believe, this young boy's notebook or something. Yeah, that one. What that plot line wasn't super clear. But Joseph Carmichael, the same name as the senator. Yeah. Was murdered in 1906 by his father Richard. Because he was unlikely to reach the age of 21 when he would have gotten an enormous fortune from his late grandfather. And, like, there's this whole thing where he goes to this lady's house and they dig up his bones and they call the cops who are really incompetent and or gangsters. Very, very accurate, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, he, oh, the other word he says is metal. Mm-hmm. And it was his, his baptism medal with his name on it and yes. all of that. So. Basically, he, just, he uncovers this plot by this guy, Richard Carmichael, who is the father of Joseph Carmichael, the current senator, but actually the young boy, Joseph Carmichael. And like there was this whole switcheroo that he sent. He said he sent Joseph off to the sanitarium in Switzerland, but actually he drowned him and got a boy from a local orphanage and sent him off to the thing until he was 18. Mm-hmm. Wild. So crazy. Yeah. Weird, weird, weird plot. Yeah, there's uh, the setup of this is pretty long, but once you get to this point, it's kind of like okay, okay, okay. I'm like I'm back in. Yeah, sort of you thing. start. Yeah, and I think for hauntings, especially, you kind of you kind of need the setup. It's got to rev up. Yeah, you've got to. It's got to be slow, or else it's just kind of a bit much. Like Oculus yeah. was that had that problem where it was just a yeah. little too fast with the haunting. You know. Yeah, you've got to you've got to rev it up because you've got to have this moment of like. Who's crazy? You know, right. like, or is this actually happening sort of thing? Definitely. So, yeah, it it really picks back up right in, in this area. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is when, this is like halfway through and it really just goes after this. Yes. So, John decide, comes with a great plan of running his car onto the airstrip and trying to demand answers from Senator Carmichael. Yeah, this scene is crazy. (laughs) This is the moment where you're like, okay, this man has not been sleeping. It's like actually haunted. A hundred percent. Like he's lost his fucking mind. Yeah. On this airway, just being like, yeah, I know about you. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh my god, secrets, secret um, service, service, like, like back the fuck up, or we're gonna arrest you. Like, it's so funny how self-assured he is before this moment too. Because Claire oh. asks him, she's like, "Do you have a plan? What's your plan?" He's like, "Oh, I've got a plan. I've got a plan." He clearly does. This is yeah. This his plan poor man is- <laughs> has not been sleeping. It's like so loud. I, he just he's fucking lost it. It's so funny. which I get it. I probably yeah. would too if you didn't sleep for like nights on end and you're just being haunted while haunted by grief and a literal dead child. Like uh, God. And the, well, and the hard thing about hauntings is that. 
that I feel, I almost always feel like the person, there's something weird that happens where the person feels like they can't leave or they have to solve the mystery. Like they feel like it's been bestowed upon them and they're all of a sudden determined. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've never really understood that until I saw like multiple haunted yeah. movie because that's I, I i know that you don't have a movie if the person doesn't stay but it's also one of it always feels like that person once they're haunted they almost get possessed as well yes. it's like something inside of them is like this is my like due diligence like i have to solve this or else i'm something bad's gonna happen i don't know yeah and i think that it's the, weird it's, the motivation in this one was really nice that's where his wife and daughter dying came in definitely because emotionally, he's, like, it's yeah. that it's that anger from him as a father i think yeah that he's like are you fucking kidding me i lost my daughter and you killed your son yeah and that's like the nuance of his character which is yeah. so cool which is why it's so great that they cast george c scott in this he's a very, very he's an incredible actor very yeah very good and i really loved seeing him in that yeah because I, I a lesser actor i just think I, I say lesser actor i'm sorry that's not fair an actor who hasn't honed their craft as much as he has yeah or had at that time like i think that they would not have really been able to communicate that as well or yeah. you would have had to go very explicit in the you'd have to take it from subtext to text you know yeah so it's that's one of the great things about having a good actor is that you can use subtext more yes yes just those, I don't know. Yeah, we can get into that more later, but I just wanted to shout him out for that because I thought it was really great. Yeah, I agree. So after his stupid plan goes awry. Oh my God. <laughs> the senator wants the police chief to go shake him down, basically. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, Detective DeWitt. I guess he's not the police chief, but a, a detective who's on the senator's bankroll, right? Mm-hmm. And I love that they point, you know, we're in a time right now where a lot of people are starting to finally reassess police and policing Mm -hmm. and it was cool to watch this film through that lens yeah because it is very um anti-police which i was down exactly yeah because they don't like they don't give a fuck about the dead body they're like we don't care it's been 50 years like i don't give a shit and john's like yeah fuck the police they aren't gonna do a goddamn because claire's like well what about the police he's like they're not gonna do a goddamn thing he's like they don't give a fuck and then you have a detective come over and like try to shake him down and he's like get the fuck out of my house yeah he's like it's like well if you don't produce that metal i'm gonna come back here with a warrant and tear this place apart and he's like okay yeah he's like i'll fucking be here bro let's go yeah oh i loved that moment where he was like i'll be here yeah it was so and you can tell he was like he was totally um the the uh sheriff yeah, uh, detective. Detective. That's yeah. what I'm t- uh, the detective was totally bluffing. You can tell because after he's like, "I'll I'll do this or that," and you you he totally thinks that um, he might not even be bluffing. He might have been serious, but it does. It's maybe, like, but he I could just kind of tell he was like, "Okay." Then after the detective leaves, we get this crazy cool shot of I don't know. I I want to know if there's a technical term for this in the same way that like seance is a technical Uh term for those sorts of things like where in horror films when you uncover something and you see what's actually happening but you're not seeing the actual thing does that make sense like how he sees the detective's head like underwater like through the glass oh so yeah so so what happens is uh, yeah that there's a um so there's this sequence that happens right after where john is called to a mirror right yeah and it's a piece of glass of some sort. And he's hearing the anger of 
the real dead Joseph Carmichael, mm-hmm. the young boy. Mm-hmm. And here's that voice and it's angry and all of these things. And then suddenly the glass shatters and there's a face hanging upside down in it. It yeah. then cuts to a phone call from Claire who's left. And she's like, oh, my God, John, I just saw it. It was I, 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 there were so many like sirens and police cars and yet and all the ambulances and everything. And the detective DeWitt's car has flipped over and he, it's the exact same face. He's got those like very prominent sideburns, mutton yeah. top things. And he's hanging upside down in the car because it's flipped over and the windshield is shattered. I'm going to call it until given otherwise, I'm going to call it a crystal ball moment. I think that's a great name for it. Because it's, yeah, it's, you're, you're looking in something reflective or see-through, glass, mirror, whatever. Yeah. And then you see something that's happening and you're like, oh my God. And then, yeah, you get like a phone call or you see it on the news. You, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's one of those things. And I've seen it happen so many times in, in movies. I think it even happens like in the craft or something. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's like one of those just like magic things. Definitely. I'm going yeah. to call it a crystal ball. Crystal moment. balls. Crystal ball moments. A great yeah. thing for it. Yeah. Love that. So, yeah. And there, it's, so we, we see him dead and it, John's like, um, uh, Oh, <laughs> yeah, yikes. Of course, Senator Carmichael uh, was expecting a call from Detective DeWitt at the end because he had said, send word to call, have him call me at this number mm-hmm. and go deal with that man. That's why he was over there. Of course, he gets that news and he's like, well, fuck. All right. I guess I got to meet with this crazy because he thinks he's being blackmailed. He does. Yeah. He sincerely I'm believes sure, he's being blackmailed. I'm sure he's gone through that before. Oh, absolutely. He's one, one of the richest men the in the world sort of thing. Yeah. And he's a U.S. senator and all that. Everyone wants money. Yeah. So he does sit down with John and they have a chat and Senator is just gets angrier and angrier and angrier. And it's this there's a there's a lot of interesting sort of like leftist critiques in this movie. I don't know if they were intended, but this is another one. This is another one that we were looking at where this man refuses to believe that his father would do horrible things for money. And yeah. that like John's like, that money's not yours. Exactly. And it's that you didn't earn this wealth. You were born into it. I think that's even the line that he says. You didn't earn this wealth. You were born. You you weren't even born into it. You were brought yeah. into it for uh, by a murder for the mo- for the worst reason imaginable, greed. But there's there's this really nice, powerful scene here between mm-hmm. the two of them because John's very calmly explains, like, "Look, man, I'm sorry. It's not like your dad did something horrible." Yeah, and- this is why this is why it's important too to go. So it's really important to go back and watch movies that were made decades ago because yeah. a lot of people think that like these quote unquote leftist views are like somewhat new yeah. when they're not. <laughs> no, they're um, <laughs> old as hell. <laughs> yeah, just because it's 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 in some people think it's like an extremist view. Some people think that it's like new because of um, what's going on in the world right now. It's not. Right. No, these have been it's around forever. Been around forever. So I think and and it's the whole thing where art imitates life and and you you express your beliefs through 100%. your art form. And I think that it's really cool to go back and see just what's said because Definitely. there were so many points in this movie where you and I were like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like that's somehow it's it's really relatable right now. Absolutely. So yeah, that's all i wanted to say totally no and i thought i just really enjoyed yeah a lot of we can we can get into more of that later because i want to talk a little bit about how this how art imitates life or how uh artists interpret life into their art Mm -hmm. but yeah this whole scene is really really cool and it's this it's it's fantastic acting from both of them yes watching melvin douglas as an old man at the end of his life and career is like just act the hell out of the scene going from just pure anger to just weeping 
yeah. in a turn. And he starts talking about how, no, my father was a loving man. He was so good to me. He took so much care of me. He would have been incapable of murder. He could not possibly have done this. And like refusing to treat with the, uh, the evils of his ancestors. So John takes the real metal out mm-hmm. and just is like, look, I've got it here. And Senator Carmichael also pulls his out. And he, he's done this before where he's checked it to make sure that he's real. Mm-hmm. And he leaves it. And he says, here's the metal. Here's all the files that we pulled about everything. And here's the only copy of the seance recording. I have no, I didn't make any copies of any of this. I just want you to do the right thing. Yeah. Because he's like, he tries to pull out a checkbook and pay. He's like, how much do you want? He's like, I don't want money. money, I want justice. Mm -hmm. This child deserves justice. And I think that that, it was such a powerful moment there. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the senator just kicks him out. So now we have one of my favorite things. Interstitial shots. Yay! (laughs) Interposed with each other. It's so cool. I love when they do dual timelines. Or parallel timelines that are happening yeah. at the same time, whatever you want to call it. So John gets back to the house and real Joseph, ghost Joseph, is freaking out. Glass shattering. Everything. Right? Like yeah. just every, the chandeliers like shaking, swinging. Mm-hmm. Claire has been like entranced upstairs because. Is this when she gets chased by the wheelchair? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little Rocky horror. <laughs> it is. I was like, this is silly, guys. That's exactly what I thought when I was watching. I was like, oh, wow. This is just that bit from Rocky Horror where Janet's running through the uh, the mansion and Frankenfurter's chasing her. It's pretty funny. Uh, but she's like drawn upstairs to the attic where Joseph's ghost is like, it's a, his little home. That's where that's where his, his room was. Yeah. <laughs> Seat. Yeah. Uh, and she thinks that John's fucking with her. She's like, I don't want to go up there, like, but she can't find him. And apparently Joseph's ghost was blocking the sound and everything and trying to like bring her up there to like kill her because he's angry. These ghosts is powerful, man. Yeah. I oh love my. a powerful ghost. I, li- I hate when the ghost is too weak in a movie, you know? Yeah. Where it's like, this is some weak bullshit. Yeah, but this this ghost, he, he can block some noise and Love sound. it. I it's love it. Messing with the sound barriers and shit. Mm-hmm. Wow. Color me impressed. <laughs> it's only a six-year-old boy's ghost, too. Bro. Not even an experienced ghost. Well, actually, right. he's probably been dead for how many years? Uh, we say 50-ish. They say it's like a 50-year-old case, but it's got to be longer than that. I think the timeline in this movie is a little fucked. So he's probably actually like 66. Yeah. 60-some, I would say, at least. Yeah. However old Joseph, the Senator Carmichael is. Oh, then yeah, like 70, maybe. 70s, 80s, yeah. Lord. So she's been lured up into the attic, pretty much. Uh, John finally arrives, and after, so yeah, Claire gets chased by the wheelchair. John arrives, is like, what the fuck? And he tries to go upstairs and appease Joseph's ghost. It's a loud kid. Yeah, I thought it was Elton. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but he tries to appease Joseph's ghost, but he falls and uh, falls from the second story flat on his back. Yeah. Because she falls down the stairs. He falls on his back. And he's laying there and they're trying to get out with the house lights on fire. While this is going on, mm-hmm. Senator is comparing the two medals and kind of the truth dawns on him. And he falls into this trance staring at the portrait of his father. Yeah. We then see the Senator astral project to the house. Oh, it's in a really cool scene and climbing was, the burning that was stairs. Yeah, really cool. It was a that this was, whole scene is really amazing. I feel like I feel like for for the time it was kind of this type of scene wasn't it? 
You it's a little ahead had, of its time. Yeah, you hadn't had much like this, at least as far as I know. I know that like astral projection had been had become kind of a thing mm-hmm. in horror films, but it was this is probably the biggest one that did it at the time. Yeah, I don't. I won't ever say it's the first because there's always somebody. No, who did there's it. always. Someone yeah, I mean, there's always before. a first, obviously, but it's a chicken egg situation a lot yeah. of times. Yeah, it's really cool though because I I I haven't seen. I haven't seen that enough to immediately know that that was what was going on in this yeah, one. Yeah, it's a little unclear. It, yeah, but it's cool once you realize it. Like, it's like, it's mm-hmm. this little, like, I don't know, it's more obvious than an Easter egg, but it's like, I don't know, you have this moment of like, what's going on? And then you're like, oh, he's just spiritually there. Right. Because we were, I think we both were like, wait, how do you get there so fast? He's like 70. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, like unless he like pulled out his senator helicopter or something. Like, how do you get there so fast? <laughs> but then we we both had the moment of like, oh right, yeah. his spirit is there. <laughs> so it was really really cool to like have that kind of come out. Yeah, it was cool. So as he so the senator's astral body climbs the stairs. Claire rescues John, and the senator actually ends up watching the like I guess the the echo the of the murder. Like, he watches it in real time as yeah. his father murders the original Joseph Carmichael. And the uh, senator has a heart attack. John and Claire rush over to the senator's house. They're like, because uh, they're having the same moment. That's that's what's cool about this moment is that you're having the same feeling that they are. Yeah, exactly. Because you're like, they're looking at it like, I'm sorry, what? And, yeah. <laughs> and so they rush over the house. They're like, what the fuck? So they go over to the house and the senator's body is being wheeled out blanket over its head into an ambulance but clearly dead yeah and the uh, the last thing we see is the shot of the house burnt to the to the foundation and just joseph's burnt wheelchair sitting in the ruins of the mansion and the music box clicks open and starts playing the same lullaby i love music boxes so much is that the that's the end yeah that's it that's a yeah wrap. that's that's the whole movie great let's take a break yeah so there's a huge history by, behind, or like folklore, behind the word changeling. Yeah, really fun one. Love it. it. It was interesting for me because I didn't know any of it. I didn't know what changeling meant yeah, it was before funny. watching this, which was really cool. I'm glad I didn't look it up because I thought to. I I just had never come across this folklore. Yeah. Um, it was funny. You were saying to me earlier that like, oh, if you knew, if you know what the word changeling means, you know the whole plot already. Yeah, that's ex- I, I was that's what that. I was about to say. Yeah. Is oh, that, sorry. <laughs> um, no, that that like, it, yeah, if you, if you know the meaning of changeling, then you already know what this movie's going to be about. Yeah. But it's cool because it's also based on a true story. So I definitely want to get into both of those things. I know you know a lot about the folklore. Yeah, a good um, amount. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm like an expert or anything like that. But, you know, like a, a casual. Uh, yeah. I've taken a, a background. I think I've said this on the on a, on a previous episode, but I love mythology. And so it was like my favorite thing when I was a kid. And it yeah. wasn't limited to Greek mythology. Of course, that's where it started because that's what everybody gets taught. Definitely. But it extended to, you know. Less Roman mythology. I've always found that a little bit boring because they just ripped off the Greeks and everybody else they conquered. But like Norse mythology, uh, Middle Eastern mythologies, yeah, uh, North African mythologies, just from you know my family and stuff like that, and uh, uh, friends that I was around. A lot of Chinese mythology and Irish itself mythology is very interesting. Yeah, and I know that. So I feel like you know more than the average Joe. The average Joe being me. I sure. don't know anything about changelings. So yeah, if you want me to take that, I can take that. Yeah, I would. I would love to totally. love to get educated on it, and then I know quite a bit about the uh, true story and all of the um, which I know nothing about. So. Well, it's yeah, it's it'll be interesting. Dope. 
Yeah. Let's take each other on some rides then. Yeah, let's do it. So for those of you who don't know, which is, I guess, a lot of people listening, because um, it's not a common myth. It's the, not. The, the, actually, the myth is very common. The word is not anymore. Yeah, I don't think pe- people put it together. I didn't. Yeah, so a changeling on its surface would sound like a shape changer is what you would initially Ooh, yeah, like think would be. Yeah, like shapeshifter or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not the case. So the history of changelings that, I, that I'll focus on is the, is the Celtic Gaelic sort of myth, uh, particularly the Irish version that I, I know well. Cool. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go left to go right here. Mm-hmm. So I'll take us on a little, little garden path sort of situation. Ready for it. We now think of fairies as sort of like whimsical, little, fun, sprinkly things. Tinkerbell. Right? We, Tinkerbell, yeah. exactly right. Particularly yeah. Julia Roberts' Tinkerbell. You know, that's the, exactly. that's the grittiest version of a fairy that we typically get. Yeah. Uh, fairy godmothers, you know, all these sorts of things. Yeah. That has not always been the case. Uh, in fact, that's very, very recent. That's basically yeah. Disney Ford is where we get that. Yeah, I know that I, I've I've heard of f- that fairies were like evil. Actually. Yes, and and even less than evil, chaotic. Right, that's right. Okay, so I do know like that how how fairies have yeah. kind of just become like Disneyfied over right. the years. But yeah, cool. So think of um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are very familiar with American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, one uh, either way or the, the other. Yeah, either yeah. the book or the show, mm-hmm. uh, or both, which are both ama- both are amazing. I love that book. And oh. the and the show was great. The, I, so we've only seen the first season, but I yeah. loved. I mean, Peter Stromari. Mm-hmm. I just really <laughs> loved the book. It the book good. is wonderful. I've read it so many times. It's one of my absolute favorites. So, if you remember that book well enough, you will you will remember a chapter, uh, one of the like in the past chapters mm-hmm. about. I believe her name was Essie McDonald in the book, I want to say. It sounds familiar to me. About the the Irish woman who kept getting uh, indentured servitude and escaping. Mm-hmm. And finally gets sent to America for good. And she's all about, like, leaving out cream for the fairies and sh- your, your best bread and all of that. That was to appease them, right? It's not a gift so much as it is, like, a, uh, it's a protection racket. Definitely, because I uh, don't they like steal your shit and so stuff they like that? they can curse you, they can change your fate. There's a lot of different versions of that. Right, that's right. One of the things fairies would do traditionally in myth was that they would, if you didn't, if you did something like really piss them off, or if they sort of saw that you were unawares, or if you were not doing like the basic thing to get like like the reason I say protection racket is because it kind of like sounds like mafia shit. They're like. Oh, it'd be a shame if someone stole this baby and replaced it with a fairy. Yeah. And that's what changelings were. They would steal your baby so that they could have the human baby and give you a fairy baby that would like be sickly or would have like deformities and it gets tied up into like cuckolding and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Of like men being away at sea and they come back and they've got a baby and they're like, I think I was away longer than nine months, but Yeah. Okay. That sort of stuff. So People would that's to, to put the the truth to the myth is that the idea is that it was like oh if your child is sick and doesn't survive they were a changeling if you're like both very healthy or if your child is uh, deformed like um there's a lot of this implied in Game of Thrones with Tyrion and uh, Tywin yes Lannister yes that whole idea of like him being a dwarf and kind of ugly and uh, not this like very all American version or all Westerosian version of a man. Yeah. That's what's that's like that's what's priming the pump is the changeling myth there. Got it. So the idea is that yeah, you have a swapped out baby. So in to put it in the context of this story that 
young Joseph Carmichael was a very sickly boy, right? He was not expected to live to the age of 21. And if he didn't get to the age of 21, the will that he's a, like, that we didn't go into this, but his grandfather on his mother's side hated his father. Yeah. And so he said, if the kid dies before 21, then all of this money goes to charity. Mm. So the father kills the son and replaces him. So it's like a self-changeling situation. Yeah. Or an auto-changeling situation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's going into it here, is that he was uh, taking his own sickly child and replacing him with a healthy one. So wild. So horrifically evil. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely one of those stories that just is inherently horrifying. It's, yeah, there's it, it's a, not even really about the haunting. It's really just like, what was, I think what the, the fuck? The creepiest thing is just like how sinister it is. Like it, it yeah, wasn't as scary sinister. while I was watching it, but as I sort of sat with it last night and this mm-hmm. morning, really, really just like you're all day, like all day yesterday I was thinking about it and like. Yeah, and you're kind of like the whole, like the whole reason that this uh film happens is just like based on this bed of just horrific actions yeah it's really what it is it's not even really what happens in the movie it's just you being like what (laughs) yeah and it was a it was interesting to like just to get into a quick theme here we were sort of circling around it earlier but the son paying for the sins of the father because the son is still benefiting from the sins of the father oh for sure that was super interesting to me like we can dive into that more later if you want to i don't want to i don't want to keep you from going into the true story first because i've just talked a lot about fairies so (laughs) so many fairies Um, two in this room Ooh, yeah (laughs) i think i think that's a really interesting theme yeah i i thought it was like when i saw the title i was like i'm interested to see what they do with it you know there's been a lot of versions of what changelings are and how Definitely. they've been done. I mean, there's any number of films that play with it. Uh, it's, a, it's a swapped at birth story, essentially. Yes. And it was really cool, I will say, to watch this without knowing the definition. Mm-hmm. Because when you find out that, that the senator was the quote-unquote like replacement baby or whatever, yeah. you it feels like a twist. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a twist if you know the meaning in the background of changeling. But it still felt cool to me. Like even like yeah. you know, like a well written twist doesn't matter if it's a doesn't matter if it's a rip off, like a rip definitely. a mass ripping off situation. It doesn't have to be Scooby Doo. Yeah, it doesn't always have to be <laughs> Scooby Doo. And and I've definitely called twists in films too. And it but it's never made it any less for yeah. me. So I I totally get that. Solid writing is solid writing. Yeah. So this film is based on a true story. Yeah. It's very, though there was kind of a lot of controversy over it because a lot of people started kind of fact checking the the quote unquote true story. Fucking neckbeards, man. So the movie is based on Russell Hunter and the paranormal events that he experienced when he was living in an old home near um, Cheeseman Park. Yeah, Cheeseman Park. Cheeseman? Yeah, it's outside Denver. Yes. It's like a part of Denver. Yes, in the late 1960s. Okay. In Cheeseman or near Cheeseman Park. Um, and yeah, he worked as a musical arranger for CBS TV in New York City. It's kind of interesting because this the movie really does follow exactly what Russell Hunter re- recounted. That's really um, happening, cool. like like almost yeah. to the T. But that's also why people think that he exaggerated. But also a lot of other people are like, I don't give a fuck if he exaggerated because he gave us a really good story. Exactly. I Yeah. I yeah. never... Bar lies. We love a bar lie. Yeah, exactly. But he... So he moved to Colorado Mm -hmm. in the mid-1960s to help his parents manage the Three Birches Lodge in Boulder. 
Yes, which it does not exist anymore, but I, I, I would know believe of it. it. Yeah. By the way, I'm getting, I, I got all of this information from the Denver Library. I will definitely link the source if you guys want to read more in, in, yeah. in depth about it, because there are several links on here and, mm-hmm. and the article is really great. Support your local library. Hell yeah. And okay, so he moved there to help his parents, which is different from the movie. The, yeah, the movie, yeah. we get the dramatic death of his wife and daughter, which. Definitely. Good, good move for a movie. Yeah, honestly, it would have been. It's a very quick and easy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It could, like it, either are fine. I'm not a, I'm not yeah. opposed to either as a, as an inciting incident. That's true. It could have opened with him moving to Denver, but I, I don't know. I think it added like what we were talking about earlier. It added this extra like anger. Yeah, like, exactly. Deep inside yeah. of him, and he also has nothing. He, I think he kind of feels like he has nothing to lose. Exactly. Because when you still have family around, you feel like you need to stay around. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little uh, easier thing to write, and I don't mean that disparagingly. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a simplification is never a bad thing in a story. Exactly. Killing off women to motivate men. Eh, but eh, it, even yeah. that's a little hazy here. For sure. So was looking for an apartment in Denver where he can live and, you know, work on his music. Rented a home at 1739 East 13th Avenue, mm-hmm. which, of course, since has been torn down because of all, you know, Naturally. that's just what, what happens when there's a haunting. Um, it's a shame. So. Keep all haunted houses erect. So in about in 1969 um, was when these uh, paranormal things started happening to him. There was banging and crashing that happened every morning at 6 a.m. Again, we've got we've got a timely ghost and stopped as soon as Hunter's feet would touch the floor. So it's one of those things, again, where you're like, am I going crazy? Am I? Because right. I've definitely come out of a dream being like, was I, did I actually hear a thud on the, or like, did some, did my shelves just fall? Definitely. Um, and it's just been a dream. So then, you know, like faucets started to turn on by themselves, doors open and closed, walls vibrated violently, um, paintings were falling off the wall onto the floor. Just like the movie. Just like the movie. Yeah. And I guess he had a friend who was an architect. And they uncovered a hidden staircase in the back of a closet. Awesome. And, I love when we right? find things oh on God. blueprints. Oh, my God. And this stairway led to the third floor where Hunter found a child's trunk containing a nine-year-old's school books and a journal from a century ago. So wow. the journal, again, yeah, is in the movie. So from the late 1860s. Mm-hmm. Damn. And the journal detailed the life of a disabled boy which again makes sense with the fairy thing, yep. who was kept in isolation, probably because they were disabled. Yes. The boy wrote about his favorite toy, a red rubber ball, which if you remember in the movie, yeah. there's oh, a cool. red ball. What a nice detail. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, that was the toy he was playing with with his daughters. We didn't say that in the plot yeah. thing, but that's the toy he's playing with. His, that's really cool. Yeah, they they added so many, um, or not even added, just, just kept so many details. Yeah. So a few nights after discovering the trunk with the journal and everything, a red rubber ball dropped from the top of a spiral staircase in the home. Terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> um, so then they do, they have a seance. Love it. During the seance, say. Um, <laughs> I'm going to walk out. I'm done. <laughs> revealed the story of a sickly child who was heir to a fortune from his maternal grandfather. So again, we've got all the money. Exact we've got, detail, you know, yep. same detail. When the child became gravely ill, his parents worried that the boy's inheritance would pass to a different branch of the family. So again, right. turning 21, like you, you don't get the riches if you don't Love make it, it to 21. It. When their son died, the couple secretly buried him in a field in Southeast Denver and adopted a boy from a local orphanage who perfectly resembled 
their deceased son. Fucking freaky. Wild. Could you imagine going into an orphanage and being like, okay, we have to find like a, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed boy with freckles or like, you know what I mean? I like mean, that would be the hardest one to adopt. All the Nazis adopt those. Oh God. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to steer clear from the Nazi thing, but I, I just, I skidded right, right into, into it. it. <laughs> you didn't even steer um, away. You just like pointed it at it and I said, did. I'm steering. Oh, sometimes that happens and it sucks. Um... Like a moth to flame. uh, Right? That's exactly what that just was. Oh my God. This And this is crazy. They trained him or like groomed him to take on the identity of the deceased boy. I'm Um, like, I'm shivering. This is so freaky. I hate this. It's so freaky. This is why I don't do true crime. (laughs) And the boy went on to become well-educated and successful because he wasn't. Yeah. And he's from a rich family and he got millions of dollars. Yeah. It's pretty hard not to be. So Hunter said that, you know, this child spoke through him at the seance and revealed directions to his burial place under a house in or under a house on South Dahlia Street. Hunter stated that after gaining permission to dig under that home, which we see in the... Yeah, he digs and finds the well where where the father buried him. Yeah, Mm -hmm. in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, in the movie. So... This is when Hunter found a gold medallion inscribed with the deceased boy's name um, in the grave. Love it. Yeah. A few days later, Hunter stated that he began to experience more just like violent ghost ghost mm-hmm. activity. Right. And gla- like glass doors blew up. Oh, it actually severed an artery in his wrist oh, because shit. of the glass. The inner walls over the head of my bed violently imploded. So it's it's also a lot of like the movie. Like it becomes yeah. more violent after the seance. Yeah. And then at that point, Hunter had had, had enough, uh, left the house and only returned to it again to watch its demolition. And now it's a high rise apartment building. <laughs> Isn't um, everything these days? Right? Yeah, that's what they always turn it into, isn't it? Um, He remarked of the raising, as the walls of the wing which had contained my bedroom collapsed, they suddenly flew outward and crushed to death the man operating the bulldozer. One last death under this ghost's um, belt. Just fully wild. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. Like, the house is gone. um, Right. You know. So there's there's a book by Phil Goldstein... He, he wrote it in 1996, and it's called The Ghosts of Denver, Capitol Hill. And this is kind of where he kind of explains that the historical details in Hunter's story don't exactly check out. Oh, of course not. No, um, there's and, no way. Well, again, like everyone's <laughs> like, well, we don't really care. Yeah, you know, like yeah. everyone was like, it inspired this cool movie that we really love. It's a good story. We, it's a great. Yeah, yeah. He, he I might would love have, to hear that over a bunch of beers at the bar. Like, that sounds yeah. fantastic. Well, and the main thing, I read a lot about the fact-checking, and a lot of it's just, like, minutia, really. It's, it's course, not, it's not it's super, it is, yeah. it's not super important, but, but uh, SparkNotes version is no children really ever lived there. There was a sure. niece and a nephew of a family who lived there, uh-huh. and then there was one other kid, but during that time, they were in the military or the army, and they were gone and never came back to the house. Got it. So it just, there was no record of a child ever even being in that house so that's kind of that was kind of the main one that they dispelled i guess yeah but no i i'm i'm of the party on the team of just being like i don't care um you wrote a cool story (laughs) even if you just like had a nightmare about it in the house and you decided to like expand upon that that's how a lot of great things are written 
And oh, I kind of like the bit. I yeah. like the bit of being like, this shit happened. Yeah, I love a good it's bit. It's dope. As long as someone's getting hurt. Like, it's not like he accused anybody of doing anything, you know? It's not like in no. the movie where you ruin a man's life and he has a heart attack over it. Yeah. Right? So, like, Precisely. this is a harmless lie. And I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a fantastic movie. Great haunting story. And a great yeah. movie. I, You know, mm-hmm. we both, I think, kind of came around on this movie. Both of us were kind of sitting there like, ah, yeah, I don't love it. It's good. It's but not like, life-changing. No. But not every movie has to be. And you nope. also have to look at it through the lens of, in the context of the time it came out. You can't, you can't see, you can't watch us and Get Out and Midsummer and The Witch and, you know, and then go back to this one and use the same lens. No. You have to think about just because with any art form and with any movie genre, the, the idea is... I mean, we hope keep getting expanded, and I yeah. think, and I think if you aren't careful, you do become a little desensitized, and you're just like, I don't know. You have to put on different lenses to watch different sure. things. Yeah. And with this one, you kind of have to think like, oh, this was really cool, and it's based on a true story. It's you know, and just the idea of a of a changeling is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I came around on this movie, too, once I realized that I was just being an asshole about it. (laughs) (laughs) I wish more people would, you know. Take a second. Take a second. Take a beat before forming an opinion and putting it on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I definitely came around to this one. It's really great. I I would recommend it again, especially if you really liked Rosemary's Baby. It's got the same vibes. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, there's so much great about this movie that I, I really, really enjoyed. I think, you know, one, just the, the technical achievements of this movie are, are, are really well done. Agreed. I think it's my favorite part of it. It was most people's favorite part of it. Great. Love that. <laughs> yeah. Like Roger Ebert and his, when he was writing for the Chicago Sun-Times at the, at the, at the time, mm-hmm. um, the, the big pull quote from his review is, if it only took craftsmanship to make a haunted house movie, the changeling would be a great one. It has all the technical requirements, beginning with the haunted house itself. The film does have some interesting ideas, but it doesn't have that sneaky sense of awful things about to happen. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, uh, there's more, he goes on, but that's one of those that I was like, you know, I first I agreed with it and I'm like, you know what, actually, no, this is a great haunted house film because it's not your standard fare. I think this yeah. was, as much as I complained about Exorcism of Emily Rose being a Trojan horse of a film, Yeah, this is not, this is still a horror movie throughout but it's a little different take on it. Like it is playing with this sort of like PI genre, right? Like yeah. the, solving a murder mystery is the main through line of the story. You're not stuck in the house and it's haunted. He's free to leave. Yeah. But he doesn't want to. He feels compelled. And is he compelled by the spirit? Is he compelled by his own guilt over his own family? Exactly. And that's what I was getting at earlier is yeah. that is that the the characterization is really interesting. And yeah, there's so many... Yeah, what's his compulsion? And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, of course... Of course, I would love to see more POC in these films, but it's yes. unfortunately of the time we really didn't do that. It sucks. Still don't. Still don't. <laughs> still don't and need to change that ASAP. But And I was thinking about also, just because I do touch on this on just about every single one of our episodes, I was thinking about the treatment of women in this one. Mm-hmm. And it's not bad other than, like you said, like the death of a woman, like fueling a man. Like that's not perfect, but it's not terrible. Like we were talking Um, about Claire, like she has mm -hmm. that sort of freak out reaction. Yeah. But this is where the context of the film matters and like how people are situated in the film matters. She also has... Her her freak out's reasonable is all I was going to say. Yeah. If you you throw a wheelchair at me from uh, from a creepy attic and lit the house on fire, I'd piss my pants and scream too. 
Definitely. No, that that's justified and it and it didn't feel like it was yeah, it didn't it didn't feel icky to me. It felt justified. Yeah. And I I mean he has a fainting moment. Remember yeah, we were he like does. Yeah, he faints, it's oh, great. The horror. <laughs> and she kind of is the one who's staying strong with him and like wants yeah. to be there and kind of may is she definitely she's not in it a lot. There aren't like like she is and she isn't. But we've We've kind of, because we're centering it around him and also the senator. Yes. So women aren't centered in this movie at all, but she wants to be there. She is there. She She's interacting with the story. She mm-hmm. has she has agency. She, she, she makes choices. She, and her decision is to stay there with him. Right. And to help him through this. And she's like into it. She's like, I think she at first is kind of like, you're, you might be crazy. But then when she hears more about it, I think. Yeah. When she like hears the tapes and watches the seance. She's she's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, She's like, all right. And then the other women we have in the film are just doing their jobs. We've got the. I kind of disagree with that. I think that there's a lot of really richly written women in here. I mean, because we have, we know so much about them. Right. Which ones are you talking about? So there's the lady at the Historical Society, the Harbinger. She's also the one who tips off Senator Carmichael about everything. Oh, that's true. So she's that's got true. two sides. She's like, get out of the house. But then we find out that that's a richer moment. And we find out history about her a little that's bit. That's true. I guess. In her life of her. To I some guess degree. I was thinking about the woman who's doing the seance. There's, yeah. no com- there's no commentary on her or that she's a woman. It's no. more of. And I don't know the history of mediums. I don't know if it's always women or if it's. A lot. The first. I it's mean, pretty typically in women. That tradition of spirit talking. Spirit talking. It comes from the. It comes from the the nineteenth century. I think late eighteenth is maybe when it started. But I know the nineteenth century was like its heyday. It's called okay. spiritualism. Uh, it's a, a Christian uh, tradition of speaking with spirits. Yeah, speaking to the other side. Mm-hmm. Primarily started in I believe Massachusetts mm-hmm. and upstate New York. Uh, New England in general is where it was housed a lot because that's where a lot of these like tent revivals began. Death. Yeah. So it was from, and that's also where the main city populations were. It was all griffs and hoaxes. Yeah. But that's, I mean, you could, again, I, not to plug in people's podcasts on our own, but if you want a lot of history about that, that you kind of have to piece together yourself to put it all together in context, but you can figure it out the timeline wise. But Aaron Mankey is a very good source of that with the podcast lore. It's Abs- mostly what it's about these days. So. Absolutely. I guess what I was saying is that there isn't like, because I feel like a lot of times um, in these movies, we either sneak in like a a sexy moment like a sexy woman or we sneak in like i don't know just the woman being afraid the whole time and we don't have that so Mm -hmm. you're so you're right we do know a lot about the um harbinger at the beginning yeah even though we don't know her name i don't think we might um something great there's two grays in this film but i'm pretty it's just because i can't remember which one she which which actor she was but i'm pretty sure we at least get a last name if not first and last name yeah no and and I guess what I'm getting at is that this movie treats women pretty fairly, honestly, because we've got a lot of them who are just showing up to do their jobs, no commentary, no, like, uh, no question of whether they're good at their jobs or not. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's very just like, they're there, this is the person performing the job, and then you've got our love interest. I will call her a love interest. I would, yeah. It's it's it's, a functional role, if nothing else. Yeah, but it never feels, it never feels gross. It never feels... I don't know. It's it's more of just like the women are interwoven into the story, and we, they they play an active part in it, mm-hmm. and that's why I think that it is a little more progressive for its time, because 
yeah, if you if you're looking at Rosemary's Baby, I love that story, but it's 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 all about stripping agency from Rosemary, and that is the hor- that like that's the yeah. whole horrific part of it. So that's kind of cool is being like this is a horrifying thing that happens to someone. Yeah, there's only one woman with agency, and it's the person it's stripping her. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's the person stripping her of it. Yeah, yeah. so. This movie treats women way better than Rosemary's Baby does. Yeah. Just because there's no, like, weird comment on, like, oh, she's a woman. Yeah, I didn't didn't really get any of that through this at all. No, it just, it it never struck me as being, as, as being like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Like, why would you, a woman would never do that. But it's, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I pretty solid, pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, I I can see why a lot of people are really into this. No, it's 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 a fantastic movie, and like it, mm-hmm. you know, part of that goes into the equipment. And I there's this website I love that I, I'll post in the footnotes just so people can look at it. It's really cool to go through and see what movies were shot on, and like yeah. what equipment was being used, and like how the original how was it captured, and then what it was printed to. Because um, it was, you know, shot on celluloid and on Panavision cameras, pretty much industry standard stuff, but very very good things. Yeah, it's even cool. You can see like what the uh, what it was originally distributed at aspect ratio wise. Yeah. So you can adjust that. Like you can adjust your television to see if it'll be better right. for that. Right. Yeah. Um, not all can do it correctly. It's usually like kind of not great. Not but great. But there's mm. ways to do it. It's cool. But yeah, you know, shot on the, was, I think it was the Panaflex. Mm-hmm. One of the original Panaflexes or like maybe second generation. What's the site called? Oh, sorry. The site is, duh. The, the site's called shotonwhat.com. It's pretty cool too. It's very like user friendly. It's very like even if you don't know much about film, it yeah. you know it, it it lays it out there for you. And you can click through on every thi- like every. It's basically just like laid all out like acquisition cameras, lens manufacturer, aperture, sound, sound system, distribution resolution, distribution yeah. medium, like all those things. Yeah. So if you want to get more into um, some film theory and stuff, that's a good place to start because yeah. you could you could look up what. What else has been shot on a specific camera, or yeah. or you can see if it's been shot on digital or mixed media, and exactly, yeah, like everything, everything like that, and then you can watch other movies that that have been made similarly. It's it's a cool educational tool. I feel like absolutely, it's just it's a place that I tend to go to, and I haven't mentioned it on the podcast before, and I just wanted to get that out there. Totally, and like we said, we will um, as always link that in our um, references. Uh huh. Yeah, with that, I think I'm ready to sign off. I don't really have much else to touch yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, we could go into like the history of Eastern European filmmakers and their critiques of like police states, but we already kind of touched on that. But that's a that's a pretty common theme here. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're not explicitly leftist, they are very critical of police, generally speaking. And if you see, like, and you'll see it in um, a lot of Italian directors from a certain era as well, like George Romero. For sure. Really hated cops uh, mm-hmm. growing up under a fascist state. Yes. So... Uh, it's always interesting to see how that plays out. Whether or not they are on the right or the left, they all hate cops, and it's really funny and, and uh, correct. Um, yeah. But it's it's nice to see like there's um I mean there's yeah there's all sorts of things we can go into to put this in context. But it's we've done a decent amount of that I think. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's I, hot in this room, and I would like to stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hot in this room. All right, babes, you know where to find us on Instagram. We are at Horror Babes Podcast. Uh, we are horrorbabespod.com. And on Twitter, we're Horror Babes Pod. Yep. And I think that's, that's all. Until next time. Bye, Bye babes. babes.